place it comfortably. So good morning everyone in the room, everyone on Zoom. Um, before I go into this Dharma talk, um, following on from the um, dedication of the sutras to um, the people suffering in Ukraine, I don't feel like I can, I can say anything further unless I address that a little bit more personally. Uh, but I've been following it very closely and probably like all of you have been very distressed and dismayed at the, the needless suffering that's occurring to those people through violence. And um, I feel a, a great sense of concern for the people um, who are suffering from that violence and a mix of anger and dismay that um, that people can make these decisions in power to abuse their power um, so negligently you know, and so unfeelingly. And so when you see um, devastation, you know, and violence and so on, and abuse of power written so large and you see the devastating effects of it, I think to myself, what, what lesson can I learn out of that? And the lesson is that, that I vow, it strengthens my vow to never abuse whatever power I've been given or have, you know, and to use it wisely and to reflect on that in my own life, not just to blame out there, but to bring it as a lesson into here um, for myself because it's so devastating um, when we see it abused. Abuse of power um, comes out of an excessive need to control. And I'd like to use that as a segue into looking at the, um, the Dharma talk I want to talk about today. And um, to give it a name um, is The Art of Feeling. And I've borrowed that title from actually the chapter of a book in one of um, Alan Watts's books, which had a big impression on me years ago and brought me into Zen practice, which is the book Nature, Man and Woman. The Art of Feeling. So following on from my talk um, last Tuesday about um, organic intelligence and Ian McGilchrist and his theory of right and left hemispheres and so on, um, I find it such an inspiring and validating book. And when I think about it, um, uh, the other writer who had a big influence on me when I was in my early 20s was Alan Watts. And uh, Alan Watts, as you know, um, made Zen understandable to the West, but, but also not just Zen, but Taoism. If anything, he was fundamentally a Taoist rather than a Buddhist, as he said so himself. But as we know, Zen is integrated into Taoism. And uh, when I reread Alan Watts's books, like particularly Nature, Man and Woman, he is saying exactly the same thing as Ian McGilchrist, only without, he didn't know about the right and left hemisphere theory, you know, the science of that. But it's like almost word for word, page for page, the, um, the outlook on life is the same. You know? And that is that um, in, in, in Western countries, not just Western countries, but 
in other countries too, our way of abstracting the world through words, concepts, you know, all those constructions, we live in them, right, as though they're true. They are just representations of the world, but we live in them as though they're true. We're not actually connected in to the way life actually is. And um, it's crazy when you really think about it, is that we think as intelligent human beings that our intelligence is up here in our brain. You know, and it's not just in our brain, it's actually in the cortex and it's particularly in the prefrontal cortex. Like we narrow it down to some little area there and the rest of the body is an idiot, you know. Mm-hmm. The unconscious is an idiot, you know. Cells, and they, they all need to be understood and explained and controlled by this up here, mm-hmm. which is really an ego paradigm, you know, for living in, in the world. The ego knows best and it will control everything you know, make all the decisions. But it really is a nonsense, you know. Um, the intelligence that allows your heart to beat or your, breathe, your lungs to breathe or your cells to reproduce, it's got nothing to do with our conscious mind. Yet it's an intelligence. And that intelligence runs through everything. There's a word for it in Taoism, which is Li, L-I, which basically translates as um, organic intelligence. You know, it's kind of like it, the, the literal meaning of it in the character is like the grain in wood. It's just the natural organic sort of patterning that runs through things. And, uh, and seeds know how to grow into eucalyptus trees or oak trees and, and seeds know how to grow into roses. There's an intelligence there that runs through everything. But our, the way we've been taught and conditioned, particularly in a Western culture, we haven't, that's not the way we've been taught. You know, we, we've been taught that the, the intelligent brain's up here and it makes order out of the chaos. And what the fear is, is if we didn't control it with our ego intellect, it would all be chaos. You know, it would all just go into, in, fall into chaos. But nature doesn't fall into chaos. It has its own organic pattern which keeps on intelligently reliving itself and working out problems and problem solving and so on. Um, one, one simple personal experience that really, really hit me once around this is that where we lived in North Sydney, down below there was a, um, a pump that pumped out the water that came down underneath the house. And so there'd be a little pool that was automatic pump and as soon as it got up to a certain level, the pump would be automated and it would pump it out. And next door to us, there was a fern tree and it was about 20 metres away. And every few years, the pump would stop working because the fern's roots had found its way (laughs) somehow 10 metres underground to the water so it could live. Tell me that's not intelligent. Right? That's intelligent. And in ways that we don't understand, you know, if you want to be scientific about it, in ways that we don't understand, the, the fern had to have got information that there was water there somehow. How it got it, we don't know, but through the soil or whatever. It finds out the water's there and it's made a decision to send out its roots to get the water so it can live. Intelligent, 
Intelligence. Intelligence is everywhere. We underestimate it in animals, in nature, in trees, etc. And part of that natural intelligence is also through our feelings, emotions, passions, whatever you might want to call them. It's just an energy that runs through us. Uh And traditionally, um, like particularly the generation I grew up in, but, you know, like stiff upper lip English culture, is that, you know, emotions are dangerous, emotions are bad. Um, Keep them tightly under control. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you will do stupid things that you will regret. Uh So that's kind of how we were taught up. It's a kind of an intellect, ego control of the emotions. And, uh, and obviously, in, in, with, with generational change now, we don't hold so strictly to that view. But then what happens around dealing with emotions and developing the art of feeling is often people go to extremes. So you found in psychology there was these models of dealing with feelings which were kind of a, a venting catharsis model. If you feel anything, just let it out. You know, you feel feel anger. Well, you've got a right to be angry and just let it out. Doesn't matter how anyone else feels about that or whatever. And so you, you get you get these extremes happening, which are not the art of feeling, but just a reaction to something. And uh, and so the art of feeling and feeling means sentience. The art of being a feeling sentient being is to be really tuned in to whatever you feel at any moment. So it's just an intuitive understanding, not of bits and pieces, but just like a pattern, which is there, like a passage of music, right? And you you tune into it. And there's a wisdom in it, and there's an intelligence in it. But compared to the venting models, it's also knowing when to inhibit and when to stop. Right? So you've got different models of therapy. The most popular form of therapy is CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, which is really a sophisticated version of your thinking will control your ruling emotions if you are sensible and rational enough about it. Right? And then you've got your eventing models, you know, um, we just let it all out and be cathartic, you know, that doesn't work either. But if we think of the art of feeling, it's like it's like any other art in life. You know, you need to go and you need to stop. So you think of like the art of archery, you need to hold back and then just at the right moment you need to let go. Mm-hmm. Or if you play a musical instrument, you need to know when to go, go with the next note, go with the rhythm, know when to pause, know when to stop. Um, I know from playing the flute myself and playing with other people, there's a tendency for people in Irish music with dance music to get faster and faster and faster as they go along, which is not good music, right? It just becomes kind of um, unmusical. You know? It's like you gotta, there's got to be a like a break on it, you know, so that you're playing at a steady rhythm all the time and then it becomes musical. The art of feeling is the ability to be in touch with that energy that motivates you 
that is there at your core and not fight it, as I said um, during meditation, but not to hold on to it as well, not to have aversion and not to grasp onto it either. So it's kind of let it, kind of let it, you let it free wheel as the energy that's required to put you in motion, but you need an accelerator and you need a brake. No, no one would sensibly get in a car without brakes, you know, or get on a bike without brakes, you know. You can't just have an accelerator, you need the brake as well. But if you just had brakes, or you put your brakes on all the time, you don't go anywhere, you don't live your life, you don't feel anything, you don't experience anything, you're just playing it safe with the brakes on all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the art of a feeling when we think of it as a kind of a, a li, li, you know, kind of in, intelligence which is there or an intuition which moves us in certain ways, is that there's kind of an, an embracing of it, but this ability to shift it and shape it in various ways so it becomes an art form. Um, a lot of our personal problems and a lot of our um, social, political problems would actually dissolve if people could actually see into this. Um, how you get people to see into it, I don't know. Have to be willing to. But if we didn't have this sense of me against nature, me against others, me identifying, clinging on to my feelings rather than letting them just flow, our experience of life would be very, very different. There'd be less suffering. For a start, you know, there would be less opposition to things, less fighting, less wars. Right? Um, it would be a very different model. Mm-hmm. Why don't we do it? Because we fear lack of control in many different ways, and it's part of the the nature of Zen practice of doing meditation, like we do today and day in and day out in retreats to just be in touch with being. And when you're in touch with being, you're naturally just in touch with feeling. Not just sadness, anger and so on, but feeling feeling the sound of, feeling the wind against you or the sound of the rain, all of that is a kind of a feeling as well. You're very much in touch with feeling in this, this practice. And it's very important to get out of that abstracting left hemisphere intellect for a while and just rest in the body, just rest in the flow of the moment and come back to that. And that's why it's also so important, I think, as Zen practitioners, um, that if we get off the devices and when we're in nature as much as we possibly can. Because when, when we immerse ourselves in a garden or a forest or the ocean or whatever, it's like we, that organic nature permeates us, like we're not separate from it from the first place, but we realise we're not and we realise we're just part of this complete organic intelligence that pervades everything. Mm-hmm. Organic intelligence is the Tao, you know, organic intelligence is Buddha nature, organic intelligence is God, whatever you want to call it, but it's a miraculous thing and we don't fully understand it and neither do we need to. 
because it seems to know what it's doing. Now, as a way of winding up, um, as you know, I've been writing some short stories. I'm not going to read you a short story, but there was one short story, it's more more of an essay in a way, um, which is called The Scribbly Gum Sutra. And um, I'll just read to you The Scribbly Gum Sutra as a way of summing up. But as an introduction to it, um, scribbly gums are the closest thing in nature that looks like human writing. But of course, it makes no sense either. Yet it is written by an organic intelligence that is far beyond our logical comprehension. Do you know Scribbly Barks have got that wiggly writing? I think of each of these natural bark etchings as the Scribbly Gum Sutras that awaken us to the profound organic wisdom of wriggliness in contrast to the man-made stitched up world of straight lines and square boxes. So, um, here is the Scribbly Gum Sutra. This is what Scribbly Gum are trying to communicate to us when we walk past. Human beings, all forms of life are a squiggle, just like me. None can be defined, none can be explained. Your squiggly nature is an expression of life's joyous, joyous, playful energy. It knows neither high nor low, superior or inferior, better or worse. It has no desire to win, therefore it never loses. Having no fear of losing, it never does any harm. And so, remember, squiggle is the wisest of all sutras, (laughs) expressing the universal truth to all those who walk by. Thank you.